what were the top five most listened to episodes on the People Scientist podcast in 2020? Keep listening on to find out only here on the People Scientist podcast. listening to The People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 86, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. How are you today? The year is wrapping up, and today I wanted to do a special year-end episode. I want to go through some of my favorite things I learned this year on the podcast, and also share with you some highlights from the top five most listened to episodes this year. Can you guess which of the episodes made it to the top five? But before I jump into that, I wanted to start off with what were my absolute favorite things to learn this year on the podcast. I think in general, it was the bigger focus that I put on mental well-being this year. I tried my best to find new and inventive ways that were rooted in neuroscience in order to promote our positive mood and good mental health. For example, I absolutely loved doing the research for episode 84, episode 68, and episode 55, where I talked about sound waves, capsaicin in spicy food, and heat as strategies to promote positive mood and mental well-being. The neuroscience behind these strategies were so fascinating to me, like how our own brain frequencies may mimic the sound wave frequencies in order to bring about different feelings, including relaxation and sleep, or how capsaicin in spicy foods may act on TRPV1 receptors to bring about a good feeling, or how heat, like a hot shower or sauna use, may act on the hypothalamus of our brain to reduce stress via the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. All three of these episodes are in my personal top three. But what were in your top list? I'd love to hear. But what I can tell you is based on my analytics, I can go through the top five most listened to episodes on the People Scientist podcast from 2020. So how about we do that today? So let's start out from the bottom of our top five list of our most listened to episodes. The fifth most listened to episode this year was episode 61. How can we enhance learning and make our brain more neuroplastic? So in episode 61, I touch upon the concept of neuroplasticity. Now, neuroplasticity is a common term we use in neuroscience. It essentially means the ability of our brain to be adaptable. Neuroplasticity can be a good thing or a bad thing. For example, it could be a bad thing in the context of drug addiction. 
In the context of drug addiction over time after long-term use of drugs like alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, we may become dependent upon these drugs and might develop withdrawal symptoms. That is because our brain became used to the effects of these drugs and adapted to being exposed to these drugs. In this regard, the neuroplasticity can result in us being dependent on drugs. But neuroplasticity can also be a good thing, especially in regard to us learning new skills, new knowledge, and learning to be able to adapt to new situations and environments. Neuroplasticity is a concept of great importance in regard to successful aging, being able to adapt to new things as we get older. So in this episode, I dove into a particular clinical trial that was published by Eichenlaub in the journal Cell Reports in 2020. The scientists had implanted individuals living with tetraplegia with a brain electrode in order to generate brain-computer interfaces. The hope is that with their thoughts, these individuals can control a computer in order to allow for a better quality of life, essentially for them to gain some control over their environment. Now, using these brain-computer interfaces, the participants were instructed to study and memorize a certain sequence. The scientists could see this pattern of brain electrical activity while the individuals were trying to memorize the sequence. Interestingly, the scientists had asked the participants to take a short nap of 20 to 30 minutes right after trying to memorize the sequence. During their nap, their brain continued to replay this same electrical pattern, and even more so versus when they were awake. This clinical trial gives us an important insight on how the brain learns and memorizes. Learning does not necessarily happen during the actual task of trying to memorize something, but it actually seems to happen afterward, and most strongly during rest afterward. So as a little brain hack, so to speak, if you are trying to improve your memory or trying to study for something or trying to memorize, taking a short nap or going to sleep right after memorizing or doing the task may just likely improve that memory consolidation. This study also provides insight that if sleep quality is reduced, then memory may therefore also be reduced. Sleep and memory seem to go hand in hand. Beyond this clinical trial, in this episode, I also looked at several studies that support the idea that exercise and promoting intense focus while learning, such as with the use of caffeine, may promote learning, enhance cognition, and neuroplasticity as well. But if consuming caffeine interferes with proper sleep, that would potentially negate the benefits. So only consume some sources of caffeine if it does not impair your sleep. Now, for example, the Food and Drug Administration recommends that 400 milligrams of caffeine is safe to consume for most adults, which equates to about two cups of coffee per day. So that was it for episode 61, a really cool topic on neuroplasticity and how during sleep, our brain replays our day's activities in order to store them into our memory. Okay, how about the fourth most listened to episode? Drum roll, please. It was episode 46. I entitled this episode M3, The Neuroscience Key to Movement, Motivation, and Mental Health. In this episode, I talk about a particular connection in our brain that regulates movement, motivation, 
and our mental health. So the same brain circuit that regulates our voluntary physical activity also regulates our motivation and our mood. This circuit has been generalized as the brain reward pathway. Low activity of our brain reward pathway may occur from unhealthy, high-calorie food intake, from weight gain, from lack of physical activity, and from drug use. This has been seen from different scanning or imaging studies in clinical trials. This lower-than-normal activity of our brain reward pathway may lead us to feeling unmotivated and not wanting to exercise or move. By contrast, if we can muster up the motivation to start exercising, this can significantly benefit our brain reward pathway and can make it more sensitive and active, leading to feelings of motivation, even more physical activity, and resilience to life's stressors. So if you have had a few bad days of being inactive and unhealthy eating, the reason why that we may feel like we have a low mood or feel unmotivated may be linked to our brain reward pathway. If we want to fix it, the solution is simple. We need to get our body moving. Moving our body may change the expression of dopamine receptors on this brain reward pathway, potentially making this circuit more sensitive and active, thus benefiting our mood and motivation. They're all three so intrinsically linked. And I think often knowledge is power, and our ability to understand why we may feel a certain way can actually empower us and give us control over our mood and decisions. So very simply to summarize this episode, moving our body may equal positive mood because they act on the same brain reward circuit. Okay, how about the third most listened to episode this year? It was episode 65, entitled, The Most Important Nutrient in Our Diet. So for my most avid listeners out there, do you remember back from episode 65 what I said was the most important nutrient in our diet? I'll give you a few seconds to try and guess. If you guessed water, you would be correct. As adults, it is estimated that we want to consume at least 2.7 to 3.7 liters of water every day. Now that can come from both food and drinkable liquid water. Unless otherwise instructed by our dietitian or physician, sometimes individuals need to restrict their water intake, such as with those uh, with kidney insufficiency. But the general recommendation is that we want to consume about 9 to 12 cups of drinking water for the average person. But if we exercise a lot, if we sweat a lot, if we are ill, we likely need to drink more than that 9 to 12 cups. It's important that we listen to our body. If we feel thirsty, if we feel tired, if we're experiencing headaches, if we have a reduced attention span, and if we do not drink water in between meals, these are all likely signs that we are dehydrated. If we drink coffee or alcohol, we also need to make an extra added added effort to drink more water in order to compensate for that diuretic effect that coffee and alcohol may have. How about when we are retaining more water, like when we feel very bloated? We can reduce water retention by cutting down on things that increase the osmolarity, like sugar and salt. And we can also drink even more water. I know it seems like an anomaly that we need to drink more water 
to get rid of water retention in our body. But when we drink more water, it tells our brain that we can stop holding on to water. Us drinking water reduces that brain response because it reduces the release of vasopressin. Now, in this episode, I had given an analogy that vasopressin released from our brain is like the city plumber. The city plumber is really important. We need them to fix certain things, but we only want them around for a short period of time. We don't want them to stick around too long because they may start to interrupt the flow of the city. Vasopressin, like the city plumber, which gets elevated when we do not drink enough water, is important for us to feel thirsty and to drink more water, but if we are chronically dehydrated and vasopressin is chronically elevated, it could lead to higher cortisol levels, higher uric acid levels, and could be associated with feelings of anxiety, a higher risk for diabetes, heart disease, obesity, and kidney disease. Because vasopressin has more effects on our body than just making us feel thirsty. So how do we reduce vasopressin? We need to drink more water. Lastly, if we are fasting, like following intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, or if we are eating a ketogenic diet long-term, we may lose a lot of water. And in order to maintain our energy levels and strength, we may need to increase our electrolyte intake, such as sodium, potassium, as well as water intake. So let's try our best to get those 9 to 12 cups of water a day. After all, in this episode, I conclude by saying I think water is the most important nutrient, and we need to keep that top of mind. Okay, our second most listened to episode. Can you guess this one? Which one made it to second place this year? That is episode 58, called Quarantine Eating and Mental Health. I really liked this episode, and it may be one of my favorite episodes of the year as well. I turned this episode into a talk and presented it as a presentation to a few different groups, and a lot of people found it very insightful and helpful, so I hope me highlighting this episode here for you may do the same. In this episode, I spoke to some habits that we may fall into at any time in our life, but more people seem to pick up these habits during quarantine such as increased consumption of caffeine, alcohol, sugar, fried foods, and how all of these things can impact our brain, our mood, our sleep, and our mental well-being. I also spoke about the importance of B vitamins, vitamin D, and omega-3 fatty acids for our mental well-being. For example, if you are used to having a cup or two of coffee or some source of caffeine like a soda every day, then all of a sudden, if you stop consuming those sources of caffeine, there is a lot of clinical evidence to suggest that this can lead to a temporary low mood and even temporary feelings of depression. This is called caffeine withdrawal. At the same time, excessive caffeine intake can also have several side effects on mood and behavior. For example, in one observational study of 217 individuals, they had contacted a poison control center after consuming a caffeinated energy drink, And a lot of the adverse effects, including heart palpitations, tremors, feeling agitated, feeling very anxious, or having gastrointestinal or stomach upset. We also know that feeling that having too much caffeine can induce temporary feelings of anxiety. It is actually one of the ways that we can mimic or model anxiety in research studies. Stimulants in general are known to cause anxiety and caffeine is a stimulant. 
The reason why caffeine can temporarily increase feelings of anxiety is because it can have a stimulatory effect on the stress system and may increase the release of the fight-or-flight neurotransmitters like norepinephrine. But caffeine is also known to act on reward centers in the brain and increase the release of dopamine, which can in part explain the feel-good and reinforcing effects of caffeine. For example, in a clinical trial where participants had the dopamine signal measured in particular brain regions using a PET scan, after consuming a caffeine tablet, and even just their anticipation of consuming caffeine, increased the dopamine signal in the thalamus of their brain. Caffeine withdrawal has been documented quite a lot in scientific studies, and was reviewed very well in 2004. And some of the symptoms of caffeine withdrawal can include headache, fatigue, decreased energy, decreased alertness, drowsiness, depressed mood, difficulty concentrating, feeling irritable, nausea, vomiting, muscle pain, etc. So when we are consuming more caffeine, even though it's something that is very widely consumed around the world in coffee and chocolate and sodas, it is important to keep in mind that too much of caffeine may have some side effects, and if we are used to consuming caffeine, then all of a sudden cut it out from our life, we may also have some temporary side effects. However, the good news is that our body does become used to cutting it out, so to speak, if we eliminate it from our diet for a long period of time our body will normalize. In this episode, I also spoke to vitamin D, for example, and how it has consistently been associated with mental health. For example, Anglin in 2013 pulled together 14 studies and noted that those with a vitamin D deficiency were 31% more likely to have diagnosed depression versus those with adequate vitamin D levels. Now, vitamin D is not too widespread in our diet, We can get vitamin D from tuna, sardines, salmon, fortified milk, and mushrooms. These foods on average give about 40 to 150 international units per serving. But the goal for us for vitamin D for adults anyways is 600 international units per day. That is why a lot of physicians recommend supplementation, especially if you live in northern countries without much sunlight. Because yes, we can also get some vitamin D synthesized in our skin, via low levels of sunlight. In truth, back in one of the episodes where I talked about sunscreen, I had mentioned that we only need small amounts of UVB rays in order to synthesize vitamin D. We actually don't need to be exposed to that much UV in order to synthesize the amount from our skin. In this episode, I also talked about alcohol. I talked about B vitamins and how a long time ago people were fed vitamin B deficient diets and they were observed over a long period of time just to see what they would ha- what would happen to them. And low mood, lack of energy, and symptoms of depression were most opt- often observed when individuals ate a diet that was inadequate in B vitamins. So I encourage you to go back and give that episode a listen because there's a lot of important details in that one and was one of my favorites and I think was very useful for a lot of people. Okay, now the most listened to episode of the year. Can you guess it? It's funny because last year when I did this top five most listened to episode countdown at the year end, I was surprised by the most listened to episode. Last year it was the episode I had done on apple cider vinegar. I was surprised that that was top one. And again, I'm surprised by this year's most listened to episode. The top episode this year was episode 79 called The Secret Side of Pumpkins. It's so funny because this episode of all episodes, I did not expect to be the most listened to. Not only of this year, 
but of all 86 episodes I've published, this is the top most listened to. So, what did I cover in episode 79? Well, I talk about how many parts of the pumpkin can be consumed, such as the pumpkin fruit itself, the pumpkin seeds, as well as the oil pressed from pumpkin seeds. Now, pumpkin is well known to be very rich in vitamin A and beta carotene. The pumpkin seeds are a good source of many minerals like iron, magnesium, and manganese. These nutrients are important for our eye health, our immune system, our antioxidant defenses, and more. So adding them to our diet can help add to the nutritional quality of what we eat. But pumpkin and its seeds are also very rich in some less well-known compounds like terpenes and phytosterols. Some clinical studies indicate that pumpkin seeds or pumpkin seed oil may improve blood glucose levels, symptoms of an enlarged prostate gland, and may improve symptoms of an overactive bladder and hair loss in men, and may be associated with a reduced risk of cancer, particularly because of these less recognized compounds present, like the terpenes and phytosterols. So pumpkin seeds and pumpkin seed oil seem to be studied a lot in the context of men's health, and as a potential addition to a healthy lifestyle in order to promote men's health and well-being. Now, the amount of pumpkin seed oil taken in the clinical trials ranged from as low as 320 milligrams taken in capsules, all the way up to 10 grams taken in liquid form, just on a teaspoon. So pumpkin and its seeds seem to be a healthy food that may hold many health benefits. But because pumpkin seed oil is rich in omega-6 fatty acids, I mentioned in this episode that we need to make sure to balance it out with some omega-3 fatty acids because the omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids compete with one another for metabolism into molecules that determine our inflammation levels and our overall health. So we want to try to keep our omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids in balance, not consuming too much of one over the other. So I suggest also adding in sources of omega-3 fatty acids, like salmon, sardines, anchovies, flaxseed, hemp seed, chia seed, and walnuts, if we are going to add pumpkin seed oil into our diet. I also mentioned that the pumpkin seed oil should be cold-pressed, and that's important because if it is pressed normally, then heat is typically generated in that pressing strategy. And the heat may degrade some of those fatty acids and turn them into lipid peroxides. So if you're going to add pumpkin seed oil to your diet, please make sure it is cold pressed and also add some of these omega-3 rich sources to your diet as well. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, for our year and episode. It has been nearly two years of doing this podcast with you And I am so grateful for all of you listening and for your messages and feedback every week. I started this podcast with the intent of providing some health-related information to my family and friends because I care about them and I wanted what was best for them. And I wanted to give that information to them via a podcast every week. And I figured if other people started to tune in, then that was just an added bonus. And hundreds and sometimes thousands of you tune in to the episodes every week. And I'm really thrilled about that. It is as though you have become part of my family as well. Because I share this information with you as though I was sharing it with my family. So I hope you all have a really 
wonderful end and start to your year. And I hope that this year in 2020, I was able to share a little bit of information that either made you a little bit smarter or helped you find better mental health or helped you give some information to your loved ones as well. You know that I will be back here next year in 2021 to help kick off another awesome year with you. And I will be giving you more health-related information in the new year to keep this going on. I will be taking a couple of weeks off for the holiday season, so you can expect the next episode, episode 87, to air on January 10th. Now, I'm very grateful for all of you tuning in. If you are by chance or feeling generous and want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the 86 episodes, I have the information in the description box to this episode on how you can do that. You can either Venmo me a one-time donation or you can choose to sign up via my Patreon link to be one of my patrons. I hope you all have a wonderful year, a wonderful end to your year and a wonderful start to your year. And I cannot wait to meet you back here for more fun science and health episodes in 2021. But in the meantime, if you want more content from me, you can follow me on any of my social media platforms listed in the description box to this episode too. I am most active on Instagram if you by chance have the choice of social media platform. So I look forward to seeing you all back here and hanging out all together on January 10th. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.